This is Functional and Fabulous, the omni-channel podcast, where we unbox tales of online retail and digital transformation. In this episode, luxury is difficult. No, it's easy. Say after me. Luxury. Luxury. No, no. Luxury. 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 Oh, somebody help me. Luxury. Not you. Luxury. Thank you, Marshall. I'm going to stop pronouncing luxury like that now. But in the case of luxury, I think... You're still pronouncing it that way. This is going to take forever. In the tier above premium... Good enough. What else are we covering in this episode? I managed to survive Storm Kieran, so, you know. Oh, I I think you'll find it Storm Kieran. This episode of Functional and Fabulous is brought to you with pride by Studio 49. Retail e-commerce experts, omni-channel growth consultants, and cut-through performance marketing specialists. Studio 49, where your digital retail success is built. Hello, and you're very welcome to another episode of Functional and Fabulous, where this week we're joined by Marshall David Johnson. Marshall is currently Digital Trading Manager at Phoenix in the UK. He is a senior manager and has over a decade of experience with both the iconic boutique Browns, um, where he worked for 12 years, and the luxury fashion marketplace Farfetch. Marshall is used to the unique characteristics of both the bricks and mortar and the requirements of serious digital innovation, working with global stakeholders um, and helping them to scale e-commerce business. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot in this. Well, there's uh, quite a lot in that. Is there, do I need to keep on going? Marshall. I, I think that's. I think we hello. just need to say hello. Marshall, you're, right. it's great to have you here. How are you keeping? Yeah, really well. I've managed to survive Storm Kieran, so, you know. Oh, I, I think you'll find it's Storm Kieran. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> I was yeah. wondering when I was when I, when I was looking at like Storm Kieran like battering the UK, did everybody give it the proper you know the proper no, attention to the second Storm Kieran is yeah. what that would totally yeah. have been. Yeah. Because yeah. in my house it was Storm Kieran as well. <laughs> <laughs> no so, wonder it clobbered us good. We deserve it. <laughs> so well, glad glad to hear you're surviving. We've actually been underwater quite a bit over here as well, so um, we feel the pain. Yeah, we had uh, what was her name? Storm Betty? Babette. 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 That's Babette. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, enough storms. Oh. Uh, okay. Yes. This is the, it's the luxury episode. <laughs> and we are delighted to be joined by you today and to chat through some of the challenges that and some of the opportunities that sit around retailing luxury. <laughs> so I, I guess, Marshall, I wonder if you could help us understand um, at the outset how a luxury store is different to a multi-brand store. I mean, you've got a little bit, of, you've got obviously got a lot of experience with the multi, the luxury uh, store side of things. Um, how you see that as different to the kind of the multi-store or the multi-brand store set up online? Yeah, I think a big difference with the sort of luxury side of things is the amount of power that the brands have and even to the point where allowing you to sell them so to me that shocked me when i first started working at browns was that you can't just go to gucci and say oh i want to sell the collection or also that you can't just go and say i want this dress and those shoes in that bag i don't want the rest basically they decide who they sell to based off of history with working with the brand or the people working there that you know they know so if you are a new store and you have kind of influential people from the industry there that can help your case. But usually it's done to, you know, people who have worked with them for decades or centuries in some cases. And you also tend to buy 
you're restricted in what you can buy in terms of quantities. So you might have, you know, really hype products or like the best selling bag, but you're only allowed to buy five or, and alongside that bag, you have to take, you know, a continuity pack, which unfortunately doesn't sell as well, the kind of, you know, more basic clothing sort of items. So it's a very different business in, I mean, than what I sort of imagined it when I, before I started working there and also compared to where I am now, which is premium. I mean, we have kind of bridge brands, but it is a lot more, you know, at our dis- discretion, what we price items at, what ranges we can get, where we can do lots of swaps, you can get lots of ATS, which is like stock in the season. Whereas with luxury, we if you have a bestseller, even with one, they might have it like, you could get more of if you wanted. Usually there's no stock because they only produced a certain line or a certain amount and it's gone to all stockists or their own stores. And if it's sold out, it's sold out. So that kind of active in-season trading with best sellers is harder um, in luxury because you don't tend to ever get replans. But luxury needs to have that air of exclusivity and scarcity, right? Yeah, That's what makes it luxurious. It's not for everybody. No, exactly. And that's what they really trade on. I mean, Celine was so successful for, you know, nearly a decade because it was so scarce. Like they didn't sell online. We were allowed to sort of mention on our A to Z page that we had them in the store, but you couldn't yeah, have a whiff of sales online. And that drove people crazy. And they also, you know, that's total yeah, exclusivity, scarcity case right there. You spent a lot of time at Brown's Fashion and the fashion industry over the last decade has really undergone some huge some huge changes particularly with luxury brands adopting streetwear and and adopting those those kind of more accessible styles and a brand or a retailer like browns that that has been around so long and had such a distinctive customer proposition in that that more exclusive space how did that kind of change over the the time that you were there and and what did that mean for you as uh as somebody leading e-commerce yeah that was a really interesting one because when i started it we had very much more classic older customer who you know bought alaya dresses or dresses for events and high heels louboutins and fine jewelry but then we started to sell in our young designer store, Brown's Focus, these Brian Lichtenberg hoodies from LA. And they sold out immediately. And then because it's more of a contemporary price point product, we could get ATS. So we got new stock in and sold out again. So then we ended up building out a bigger streetwear range. And at that point, we they did sit into different site areas, the kind of classic Brown's high fashion and then the streetwear. And then around the time that Browns was acquired by Farfetch and Holly Rogers came in as our new CEO from Netaporte. It was that time right before, like right when fashion was changing with this sort of high-low mix of people wearing trainers with their Valentino dresses. And her sort of vision that we implemented was let's mix it all together, with the exception of some brands that didn't want to be mixed that way, but like Alaya. But for instance, with brands like Balenciaga, that was their aesthetic was streetwear. So it kind of worked really well that we could just blend it. And we ended up appealing. That was sort of our USP in the market that we were sort of the first people to do that in the multi-brand luxury fashion e-commerce space. 
and we attract a lot of younger customers for that sort of irreverence. Um, and it really, it worked really well because it also solved a problem of like, oh, how are we going to, before we had great automated merchandising where you could blend based off of brand adjacencies, you had to do it all manually. And with the way deliveries come in as well, you had to sort of curate your edits quite tricky, like it's difficult to curate and edit if you only had some brands from classic, some brands from street. This way you could bring them together for outfits and for listings pages. So it, went, it worked really well, actually, but it was a big change from when I started when, you know, luxury was much more buttoned up, I guess. When when you first started, like fashion's undergoing this seismic change over, I, I, and particularly luxury fashion is undergoing this seismic change over the last 10 years, but also technology is moving underneath our, un, underneath our feet at the same time. And you touched on like merchandising there. So can you talk us through a bit about how merchandising tools have evolved over over that time and the kind of things that you were using? Yeah, so when I first started at Browns, we had a bespoke platform that had the merchandising was done off a numbered grid system. So if you would assign an index number to every product, the higher number would always go to the top of the page. And you also, of course, only would update every. 15 minutes. So I literally would make a grid on a piece of paper beside my computer with my numbers and a, and a note of what product that was like green Gucci jacket, black <laughs> acne trousers, and then do my merchandising that way. I actually did quite a clever way of then when they got kicked out of new in and went into listings, I assigned every color, a prefix number. So black was um, kind of 10. Then I think I did blue is nine. And so then when you go to hit listings pages, every listings page for like coats or would just go from black to blue to green to yellow. <laughs> so color story, color st- um, literally yeah. painting by numbers. <laughs> yeah, literally. And then if I if I ran out of, uh, I think I had like seven digits, then I had to start all over from scratch. I think I made an intern do the renumbering project at one point. I feel um, for that intern. Yeah. Oh, that was that was some real abuse of interns back then. When <laughs> rather than rather than use like a VLOOKUP, I say, like, oh, actually, can you just go through this sheet and you know, <laughs> you know, just copy this into that? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, no, but then kind of we got our own sort of the drag and drop kind of merchandising, which is quite standard now for manual merchandising. But even it was only, I think, until about 2017 that we started actually doing algorithms. I think manual merchandising still has a big play, part to play in luxury because you are selling this sort of aspirational vision. So you always manual merchandise top of pages, but then you also have trade actions you want to surface and pin to the top. But it was an after that bringing in a blend that you could choose, make a cocktail out of like how I want to wait best sellers versus time on site versus... Right recently viewed, customer also view. And then that also leads into the recommendations you see on like product pages, which are now yeah completely controlled by algorithms normally. But and I mean, we didn't even have those. When I first started, it was just, we did shop the look, which is an interesting one because that's always a big fashion focal point, shop the look. And when, since we were so keen on our styling at Browns, we always had as a big priority and it was very visible on the product page. But then the kind of tech wisdom was that, oh, you know, customers also bought or viewed 
is more powerful in terms of sales. And that's what should be you doing. And also you should be doing that because it's more scalable, like manually creating these outfits in the system is a bad business practice. So we actually ran an A-B test of replacing that with a shop to look with a recommended instead. And it actually didn't perform as well. Having, so yeah, our customers particularly really wanted to see that outfit and discover new products that we had sort of curated for them. Whereas it still was valuable that we had recommended running on the algorithm below the kind of outfit section. Because yeah, there are customers who will, you know, use that algorithm as well. But it was an interesting learning that the kind of tech wisdom wasn't necessarily correct. And it was wisdom. worth doing the manual work to mm-hmm. put the outfit in there. Didn't necessarily meet the styling and the retail wisdom. And I suppose that would that start in in production? So the buyer has been presented with their limited assortment from the luxury brand. And that goes into a production process to be styled and and photographed and and would that shop the look then need to carry right the way through from from the product imagery into the way that the site was merchandised was that part of your yeah so we actually assigned it with the styling assistants in the studio so they would and so they would do it into the pim basically as they were shooting the look Mm. and then that way that way it carried through the whole way so it was time consuming on that side of things once it was in then it was in and did that change over time? So once once Farfetch made that acquisition, was more technology brought in to facilitate that, or or was it still a pretty manual job? It stayed manual the whole time. I mean, there was lots of efficiencies that came in when Farfetch. We also added size and fit assistance in the studio, and we ended up combining the roles. So, you know, they would enter in the outfit while also measuring the products, checking the fit with the model, seeing if it was true to size. But yeah, the nature of that is kind of that it always was fairly manual. I mean, they added more scanning technology, I think. <laughs> they used a barcode scanner. Whereas I think in the past, we would quite often do it semi-manually, like find the product on the website, intern, copy and paste the link, yep. <laughs> um, that type of thing. And I think that doesn't sound very scalable. And I, I think for anyone listening, can you give us a bit of context about like size? So are we talking a couple of hundred? Are we talking a couple of thousand SKUs? Like, like what kind of size business are we talking about here on yeah. on like a seasonal so, basis? So Browns, when we were bought by Farfetch, was about 12,000 SKUs, so like styles, unique styles a, se- a year. Uh, so about six a season. And then we moved over it was a long time over five years we grew to 60,000 SKUs per year and then the studio team also at the peak was about 100 in production across logistics styling assistance so fit assistance shop look assistant style assistance photography retouch wow. art direction yeah so it was a massive team but then actually with that many products you're shooting pretty much flat out all yeah. day every day a hundred sounds like a lot but if it's over sixty thousand styles in a year that's thirty thousand in a season that's mm. a lot of productivity out of each one of those hundred people right yeah. at peak we would shoot weekends and do shifts as well so you had like one that started 
at you know, 6 a.m., finished at 2, and then someone came 2 to 10, basically, just yeah. to get the maximum. That's pretty flat output. out. And, and yeah. the amount of data that you were capturing at the same time, you know, when you're, you're actually measuring the garments, uh, checking the fit size, recording all of that information, there was actually a, a pretty substantial production process that, that you had there. It was it was quite big because with luxury we were under lots of demands from the brands that you know the finished product looks a certain way. So particularly mm-hmm. with styling, even if we if we were going to mix the high low, it obviously had to look really good because if you mix high low and it looks bad, then you're really in trouble with the brand. So if you're going to so that was our one kind of problem with that strategy was that you had to really pull it off. Yeah. Whereas if you do head to toe it's easier to make it look good because that's how the brand designed it. And, you know, you can kind of just easily put it together, shoot it and move on. So that's why it was such a big team and a big support team of kind of managers at like styling and art direction level to kind of keep the team on point for that type of thing. But yeah, with the size and fit, actually, we did another pilot, which it's a shame it didn't. I mean, a lot of like Mr. Porter in that group, basically, they were doing it for a while, which we did an A-B test of it as well, where we measured every size that we received in our DC. So then you'd have a table on the product page that would pop up in the size guide that said, as small as these measurements, a medium as these measurements, large as these measurements. And that was also like a team of 12 doing that yeah. across the catalog. It, you know, we did see positive conversion rate and lower return rate, but you know, for the cost of running that and the kind of systems demands, it just, it didn't really work for us at the time to have it more than a pilot scheme. But that, you know, it is amazing data to have. How long did you run that pilot scheme for? Six months. Wow. Was was, was it mainly like female fashion or was it across all of? It was across both men's and women's. So we did it across the whole catalog while we were running the scheme. And what sort of a reduction did you see in the uh, returns rate? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of returns, you know, there's other things that factor into returns, mm-hmm. right? But we did see, you know, it dropped from around 30 to 25. But we were doing some other activations around that as well. Like, I think the fit assistance in the studio also helped to say if it was true to size or not. Yeah. You know, and out we, of the all of the things that you were doing, um, did you hold on to certain practices? So um, we held on to the fit assistance in the studio yeah. to kind of gather the true to size nature and to measure the shooting size. So you had some scale of at least what one size was. And then we kind of, we managed to maintain after the pilot, like returns rate, you know, kind of, it varied depending on the season, but like if we didn't mark down or not, but it was like around 25, 27. So we never hit 30 again. So it was an improvement. Yeah. You said that the conversion rate was improved as well. How did you surface the sizing information? Did you do something to, you know, to increase the visibility and the and and there and thereby give additional assurance to people that the sizing was correct? Um, like, how did you achieve that? Why did the conversion rate increase? Do you think? So we we did have a size and fit section on the PDP, but then we also had the pop up, and we actually did highlight. The, we made the kind of some UX improvements to the pop up. CTA that I think helped with that. And then when you hit into that, you got the grid with the measurements. Yeah. It's a massive overhead though. And I think I think price point, luxury has a better chance of making something like that work than 
certainly a fast fashion brand that's at the 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 much oh, totally. much lower. I mean, if you're a modern brand, you should have the information anyway. So mm-hmm. I think it's definitely something that is very helpful. I mean, that's the big, you know, not to get into that too much, but <laughs> that's the sort of holy grail that every tech company is chasing is the digital f- size and fit solution. Yeah, it's not no the one's first landed time, on yet. <laughs> it's not the first time it's actually come up in conversation. Like if we if we rewind back to one of our earlier podcast mm-hmm. episodes, I think Matt Brown was talking about his frustration with with size and fit driving driving returns online. And um I, I'd say like particularly in luxury, it must be it, it must be quite challenging because that price point is mm-hmm. so much higher. I think part part of Matt's point as well was around the the customer experience it was that whole idea of this company knows my fit and will be recommending product that fits me um, and I have that assurance and that is he referred to it like it's a very very pleasant experience of having an actual tailor um, who has measured you and you know that everything that you're going to be presented with will fit you and you, you know um, so you know that you're, you, you, you have less of that concern about okay I have yet to try this on will I end up having to return us all of that kind of thing yeah there's, there's some of that but that leans into that in-store experience and I know one of the things that that Farfetch started to do post the acquisition of Browns was start to bring some of that kind of technology and and some of that into store. And there would have been quite a bit of innovation in that that space. And one of the things I'd be keen to understand is how did that impact your online business? Did it work well? Did it work in tandem? What what were kind of the impacts there, Marshall? Yes, it definitely did positively impact the online business, especially because we did have quite a big cohort of customers who were, you know, not necessarily based in the UK, but then they would like, they shopped through their personal shopper in the store. So they could then use the sort of the store of the future app to kind of place their orders through their assistant, through their shopper. But it would come through as a web sale. We ended up separating it out to have like a separate department, which is called the club, which was those sort of customers. But it did generate more sales because also they got the assurance because they could communicate with their stylist while they were shopping online. I think that was a great use case of that. And that was all Um, part of the store of the future program. Yeah, exactly. Um, What other kinds of things were in that? I mean, most, it was a lot more like magic mirrors. So, you know, if you're looking in the fitting room, you have suggest more of the shop, the look kind of idea, and you could then, you know, tap, oh, these shoes. And then the sale assistant gets the notification through the app, oh, bring the shoes to fitting room five. And, and then also if they had the app, when they're coming into store, you know, location services would know they're about to arrive. They could have pre-selected items they want to see. Also, the sales assistant has their whole history of, you know, shopping. So it's a better way of serving them and connecting, you know, the online and offline customer. There's a, there's a lot of talk about whether or not um, retailers should develop an app um, for their uh, for, for, for their business. Um, and often the, the apps themselves would probably be not much 
more advanced than the website, um, except that the customer is always logged in. Um, what you're talking about, there's a, a heap of additional um, functionality in that sort of an app. What's your what's your take on that, Marshall? Do you think is is it worth developing an app for your retail business if it's only slightly better than the website, or would or do you, do you feel like you would need to have all of those additional pieces of functionality like location awareness? I'm coming in store. I'm already in store. I'm in the changing room. You know, all of that sort of thing. I mean, I mean, obviously that that you can see the benefit of all of that. Yeah. That makes it clear that an app would be useful. But yeah. I think the biggest benefit of having an app is for loyalty mm-hmm. and rewarding loyalty. Whereas, you know, the Farfetch one, because they were already so advanced in what they were doing, and this was a big showcase moment, they probably took it further than most businesses would need to. And I think from, and that's, you know, like I'm now at Fennec and we don't have an app, but I think there's that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Would <laughs> yeah. you, if, if, at Fennec, would you actually get an app in that case? Yeah. I think there's scope down the line, but I think that it, what it would be for would be, because yes, I think with an app, you're, you basically opened up a direct portal to people's pockets where you can ping them notifications about products. But I mean, you need to be quite careful. It's not spamming them. Mm-hmm. So it is, you know, things that they're interested in. So you do need to link up. I think that's the big power is you're linking up that purchase history and the viewing his browsing history with promotions or products you might have in. And I think, you know, discount or discounts or perks for app customers, like, I mean, to use waitress as an example, I'm a sucker for that coffee. So <laughs> that's why I've got my my waitress card and I literally will go out of my way. Like, oh, I need groceries. Let's swing around waitress at about 2 p.m. so I can get the, the stuff for and dinner <laughs> and my coffee. <laughs> and I think that's where, because Fennec is, we, we have food, we have restaurants mm. in the stores. I feel like that's where we could really leverage it. And out out of curiosity, because you mentioned loyalty, and uh, I was at a conference last week, and there was a lot of discussion around loyalty for luxury brands. A number of years ago, a lot of luxury brands had the, the sense that loyalty was a little bit naff and wasn't really, uh, yeah, for, for for it wasn't applicable in their business for their customer. Um, and I think that they're coming around a little bit. And now there's a there's this sense of we're not talking about loyalty as much as we're talking about community. But what what do you, what do you think about that? What's your take on loyalty community? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's NAF. Uh, mm. I think also with um, brands, because it's multi-brand, you have the thing with loyalty is in the kind of London multi-brand luxury fashion market. There's a lot of there's competition, so you almost have to offer something. And with our loyalty, it wasn't so much like you know, it wasn't a free coffee. I mean, it was free coffee. You came in, had your appointment, but we did it more around the services you received exclusive in i mean that's what most luxury brands do now for loyalty it's you know invites to fabulous dinners or talks or i mean big brands will send people to fashion shows in when you know louis vuitton is doing the resort in palm springs they fly people out who are big clients i mean that's the kind of future that does sound like a gig that i would enjoy Exactly. <laughs> might even do it Client, for free. <laughs> yeah, clienteling gig. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so Felix, little bit, little bit different to Browns. Yeah, um, a bit different, but equally as interesting in terms of product catalog breadth and the production overhead. But there, there must be some key differences in things like product access and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, what I've found, I mean, I'm five weeks in, so I don't know everything about the business yet. <laughs> but I do find the ways of working, I think also just the nature of the business, because you know, Fennec is a national chain of department stores. We've got nine in the UK. It is a big account for beauty, big beauty brands. Whereas at Browns, we sold beauty, but much more in a, you know, ASOP and some really cult skincare quantities. Whereas at Fennec, and because the website's very visible for these beauty brands with such a big account, they want my sort of role to basically work directly with them on assortment, go to their press days, go to their strategy sessions, and, and even to determine well, yeah, what's selling, how can we adapt the range and get different like gift with purchases or promotions. And the fashion brands also work that way. I mean, it's they're more run we have a lot more access to you know swap out so mm. we have regular regular meetings with that with each of the brands so it's almost more the e-commerce sort of digital trading manager role is almost more of a buying role in terms of how i work with the brands than i did at browns because the browns the buyers were the buyers and yep. they worked with the brands and then they fed down to us mere mortals yeah <laughs> and now i'm the you know, I've got a seat at the table and they want they want to know what's working, to, how can we drive sales? Do you think that the buyers <laughs> do the buyers see that as like, okay, hey, we're closing the loop and we're getting data back, or do they see it as the tail wagging the dog? Like the you mean the buyers at yeah. like at, at Browns, for instance. Well, well yeah, Phoenix I was thinking I, but, uh, Yeah, yeah. at uh, Fennec, uh, do the buyers welcome this more than I can imagine that they don't at Browns, but tell us. Oh no, no, no I think yeah, but it was, it's the way luxury buying is set up, I think, is very siloed in that sense. And there's a whole hierarchy within buying that, you know, you do your time to progress to the next level. So you can finally, you know, be Miranda Priestley at Paris Fashion Week. <laughs> but um, I mean, Fennec, I think, because the mix of concessions in Ownbot is also a lot heavier on concession. And concessions are set up to work more directly with operational people like e-com rather than through buying. I mean, you have a concession sort of manager, but the, so the buyers of Fennec are actually the, yeah, they're quite open to this way of working. I mean, it's the way they kind of always work. So I think they're glad to get the access to the data and it's a bit more of an efficient way of working just going directly. Whereas in the past, you know, Brown's buyers would ask for this kind of data if they had a certain appointment that had requested it. But they would tend to source most of the data out of their merchand of the merchandising team rather than through ecom. Yeah. So they would come to ecom with maybe some you know, web stats if they wanted those. But sales wise, they went more through merchandising. Whereas the way Fennec is set up, there's actually like I have a sort of digital merchandising team that has access to all the data that they're asked that they're after that we give the brands through our own working with them. Mm. Very good. We're we're kind of approaching uh, time to wrap up, but I do have a, a question. We talked a little bit about Omnichannel, uh, touched on it with the app um, for Browns. And, you know, G Gordon and I talk quite regularly about how it is the job of the uh, the merchant or the retailer 
to ensure that uh, each of the touch points for the customer are joined up in a kind of a, a sensible way that it feels frictionless, that it feels like one single experience. And I, I know that in some cases, some luxury brands might feel, well, actually, you know, um, we really want our customer to come in store. They have to uh, feel, uh, you know, have the experience, have the welcome and omnichannel isn't for us um, and that sort of thing. And I was curious to know for the Browns customer, did they enjoy the omnichannel experience? Did they use it? Or did maybe maybe they had no opinion on it because it was so frictionless that they just felt that this was the experience, you know? Well, I think they enjoyed it, but I think it's one of those things where you notice it more when it's not there. Mm. And because we had sort of, and a lot of the competition in London offers that type of experience or, you know, coming from Hong Kong, they also would be used to it. So for that kind of Browns customer we had that was very tech savvy, they, I think, expected it. So it was almost like they would have really noticed if it wasn't there rather than really noticing that it was there. If that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. One last question from me as we wrap up. Recently joined Fennec. What are your big priorities in terms of like the coming 12 months what what's on your what's on your hit list of things that things that we'd like to do that you can share with us yeah well i think maybe because i grew up in you know the 90s i still have such a i think it's a shame what's happening to department stores i think and i think it's exciting that there is an opportunity now to you know, Fennec is doing well, actually, in the kind of grand scheme of department stores, but it's an exciting opportunity to kind of how does a department store function in, you know, the 2020s. And I think what I've noticed is that we're very siloed in terms of our online experience with the categories like beauty's its own landing page, women's its own landing page, and I home's own landing page. I really want to create this sort of lifestyle brand that because why would people shop with us if it's not to come for a one-stop shop? Because yeah, the benefit, the USP should be that we sell, you know, nice home accessories and cool clothing brands and your kids wear and, you know, things for uh, the dinner party you're having. And I think that's where we need to become more of this lifestyle destination through the online journey and the online merchandising and the online assortment as well. So I think that's what's exciting about it is to kind of create this journey and this destination that is brilliant and we wish you the absolute best of luck although we don't think that you'll need the luck to do it because you sound like you've you've got you've got I'll a very clear vision get it <laughs> <laughs> great uh, thanks thank so you. much marshall we'll talk to you again soon take care thank you both thank you what did we learn we learned that luxury is difficult luxury yeah it sounds very difficult it sounds really challenging doesn't it it's not like myth busting luxury Mm. is what i learned lots about Mm. today i think one of the interesting things i i I recall a black friday that i would prefer not to recall where we had an issue with uh, the promotion for a particular product uh that was very much in demand uh a fine product you know in the realm of luxury Uh, a lot of people wanted it and um, there was kind of a last minute discount was put on the product, which caused problems for the website uh, when it was re-indexing the pricing, etc. And there was quite a bit of marketing spend behind the generation of anticipation around this product. 
And when the uh, the product was actually sold, it sold out in seconds flat. And then there was a whole uh, amount of post, you know, chatter on socials about, oh my God, they didn't have it anyway. Like, I mean, I couldn't get it. Did you get it? Nobody got it. You know, did they really have it for sale at that price, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened was it turned out that um, after all of the effort and work and everything else, they only had 20 uh, of the items actually in stock. So they had 20 units. And, you know, there was a similar, there was a similar How point Balenciaga there. Balenciaga triple S. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, you, you have even uh, PlayStation, PlayStation 5 a couple of, a couple of years ago, um, which brought down websites, websites across the world. In some I cases, the websites that. only had a couple, you know, had tens of them to sell. I remember one particular site, like four or five hours of disruption um, because people just kept on hitting the site to try and get this, this product. Anyway, I guess my point is you spend an awful lot of time. There's an awful lot of marketing. There's an awful lot of effort goes into it. Is it all worth it? For is the it merchant? worth it? Yeah. I think we learned that in the case of luxury, mm-hmm. I'm going to stop pronouncing luxury like that now, but <laughs> in the case of luxury... <laughs> I think you're still I, pronouncing it that way. <laughs> of course, I, try it again. Try it again. <laughs> luxury. <laughs> no. <laughs> luxury. 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 Yes, perfect. So, so in in the case of of selling luxury, <laughs> I, I'm so self conscious <laughs> of that now. Like, on, on so high um, quality premium goods. And then, and, well, uh, well, in the tier yeah. above, in the tier above premium. Mm-hmm. See, I get away with it. I, th- I think we learned some really interesting things around the importance of storytelling. Mm. Well, there's a theme um, mm-hmm. of how that investment that was made in terms of production, mm-hmm. in terms of shop to look, yeah, outperformed an algorithm. Yeah, and then I think, okay, well, is that's... that really surprising? Well, it shouldn't be because that's what we be. tell everybody right. yeah. that they yeah, yeah, should yeah, yeah. be doing. Absolutely. So I'm just Absolutely. delighted to get that affirmation. But what was interesting was. The sales declined if they took the shop to look off of the PDP, but it was better to have both shop to look and the algorithm in there. Because people shop in different ways. Yeah, exactly. They so, want different things at different times. Yeah. But we've often we've often had that conversation. Is it worthwhile actually curating the goods, uh, proposing <laughs> an, an outfit or proposing a shop to look? I mean, of course it is. That's what people, that's how you're going to distinguish yourself as a, as a retailer. People go to your particular store because... They know how you're going to present things and they want to see things presented that way to them so that they know what they're supposed to buy because most people don't have the same taste that the buyers have. I think to be able to inspire customers to be able to to put a story together, but particularly for a brand, if you think like Brown's multi-brand tier above premium retailer, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's their role. That's the the buyer's role is to... It is to pull these stories together and inspire customers. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting the idea that some of their customers' personal shoppers would arrive in store with the app. Oh, I love that! I just mm. thought how fantastic. And then this idea how of much like do I need video, to spend for that? video calling, mm. video calling your customer that's that's far away whilst you're pulling together a collection. Oh, I'd yearn for that level yeah. of service. What, what I thought was quite interesting because we have been asked, and I asked the question on the call. We've been asked a couple of times for to build an app, and often we're pointed at these kind of. Um, website to app conversion services and you know the app that farfetch have put together for browns you know the store of the future i mean there's phenomenal technology in that and that is not the kind of app 
that we're being asked to build. No. So I guess I guess Marshall's answer was, well, if you can bring it, bring loyalty into the mix there, then it's going to be worthwhile. Do you know who's perhaps brilliant? Hmm? And it's recent, and they are also in that luxury space. Brown Thomas, absolute, like, cracking upgrade to the app recently. Oh, yeah, that was a couple that, of months ago, was That it? was a couple of months mm. ago, um, and of course, same across Arnott's. But yeah. As well as being able to shop it, it's got this fully integrated loyalty now, and it just works brilliantly, and I'm a bit of a sucker for bed linen. Yeah. Um, I actually had quite a lot of points, apparently. Apparently, on that I never knew about. Right. Um, as I was as I was scrolling through the app and, and my recommendations were popping up. But um really nicely integrated loyalty platform. They've done they've done a super job. It works really it's it's really slick. That's a great example of taking core app functionality. Yeah. They might as well just have your website works yep. just as well on a mobile. Mm-hmm. But taking that and then embedding something in there that's useful, that's and of loyalty, course, yeah. when you're in Brown Thomas, you can never find your loyalty card. But it's yeah, of course, yeah, 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 I have, and that's like bringing that down to down to earth with a bump. Mm-hmm. Same in Tesco. Why have you got the Tesco app? Because it's got my club card on it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that's a loyalty application. It's an interesting, as well. yeah, it was an interesting uh, point because you know it it does seem that even with all of that tech, you know the. Uh, I am now in the store. <laughs> bring, bring me my, bring me my clothing. Bring me my things. Yeah, it, even even with all of that, uh, the point that he made out, uh, or the point that he got to, was the loyalty piece. And I, 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 you know, it is it is an interesting area. I think for twenty twenty four, it's going to be a theme. It has been a theme, but I think it'll be it'll be more of something that people focus on. And it's beyond loyalty. It's nearly the, the kind of community. Not to get soppy about it, but it's the. It's the idea of how do we build the community because these are not just people that we are going to reward for being loyal, but they're also people who are actual advocates for us. They're part of our community. We 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 uh, we embrace them to maybe give us feedback. We get their feedback and yeah. see what we can change. Yeah. I yeah. think is yeah. the is yeah. the super important because it bit. is a tier above loyalty. A tier above loyalty. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> now on to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So. Fenwicks for Fen- everybody, Fenwicks, everybody in Ireland. Jer has been pronouncing it. So I feel like, very fancy when I say Phoenix. Phoenix is like obviously a brand, a retailer dear to my mm-hmm. heart. It's a department store I have always loved, and it's interesting to see or to hear about the take on what is that role of the modern department store. Mm. So you've got your kind of hyper luxury department stores your selfridges and your harrods yeah um phoenix is premium it's an attainable place but actually hearing the take that we can stitch those lifestyle stories together it's important to get the assortment right Mm -hmm. but if the assortment's right how do we bring those stories together Mm -hmm. online so that you can do all of those things as a one-stop shop yeah and what what I what I really liked was this. Um, it was just before the call when we were just chatting as as we were kind of getting set up, and he mentioned uh, Marshall mentioned how Phoenix was cool in Edwardian times, <laughs> uh, and it was cool in the sixties. And I can imagine that you know where where there's kind of a, a like a cool cycle uh, of you know a cycle of coolness. Well, it's the big question is right. One of the things I'm thinking is like, will department stores come back? So if you think, right, if you think of House of Fraser, mm-hmm. which is often pronounced House of Fraser, which drives me bananas. 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> but if you think about House this is of... the pronunciation episode, obviously. It's the pronunciation okay. episode. House of, Luxury. House of Fraser, Fenwick's, and Luxury. <laughs> Luxury. Um, but if if you think about like House of Fraser just before its its demise, and then you've co- of course got the demise mm. of Debenhams. So the general school of thought is that actually the department store is on the way out because we've got infinite choice at our fingertips, yeah. the fingertips of desire. Thanks, mm-hmm. Dean. Stole the Deanism. Mm-hmm. That the department store be on the way out, but actually, there's a bit of a depart. I think there's going to be a bit of a department store renaissance. I think that Fraser's group, yeah, are doing a good job of the restoration of um, the Fraser's department stores yeah. that they're investing in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing like Brown Thomas in, on our own shores. Fabulous. Yeah. Selfridges, yeah. fabulous. Harrods, fabulous. Phoenix, yeah. doing really well. So is there a role for for the department store to do that curation job? Yeah. This is a broader retail question. I don't even know if it's an e-commerce question. But to to do that curation job and to present that one-stop shop in a way that's really desirable with great experience. House of Fraser was just under-invested. Yeah. It was... Like it was not a nice experience, but if you go into like my recent encounter with uh, House Fraser's in in Belfast in Victoria Square, refit in there, stunning. Yeah, yeah, yes. I think the answer to your question feels like yes. Um, Let's say the presentation um, of the lifestyle, not just you know, it's not here's the look, it's here's the lifestyle uh, on a general level. This is how you're. Home. This is your homeware lifestyle proposition. This is your ladies' wear. This is how your kids are going to be dressed. You know, and and there's there's there you're you're broadening it across a range, and maybe maybe this is unfair. And I'm not an expert in the whole you know uh, downfall of the department stores, but it certainly felt like the department store was where you got a broad range of things cheaply, yeah, as opposed to a broad range of things that 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 were aspirationally fitting into your what you would like Get as your lifestyle. Off that promotional cycle. Mm. Yeah, get yeah. off like Debenhams on the Blue Cross sale, but like get away from the promotional mm. cycle and get into that aspirational cycle. Yeah, stuff that people actually want and get excited about and are prepared to make that investment in. Yeah, and but- if you create that, then then surely that's that's what's going to excite yeah. people back into the store. Oh, I can't wait to see what's in this season at mm-hmm. X department store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's still an opportunity. I mean, it doesn't have to all be investment pieces. You know, I think there's still an opportunity that at, at department store level, you know, you might you might come in to look at an evening where, uh, like something for, for, for an event, um, and you might leave with, you know, some, some clothing for the kids, you know? I well, mean, not uh, all beauty needs to be directional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> you got to explain that to me. What do you mean? So, it, right. Okay. So you think about the beauty department and the mm-hmm. beauty hall. And that's like potentially like thousands, tens of thousands of SKUs or a really, really edited selection of very, very premium price point options. Yeah. And actually for the department store shopper, then isn't it about actually I need to be able to get everything. Mm-hmm. I don't need 200 euro moisturizer today. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I do need 200 euro moisturizer. Yeah. But you know what? I also need the essentials. The essentials. But I need the essentials to be like nice and yeah. like yeah. doesn't have to be directional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, it'll be interesting to see yeah. where that kind of mid-tier department store because lands. Because there is, yeah, because when you have the luxury and you have the, uh, you know, the premium, there is the tier below the premium, which is still an area that isn't doesn't have to be cheap or, you know, you, you, you still have uh, a requirement to buy things that are, you know, sometimes a little bit of a, an investment or a treat, but they're not yet in the luxury sphere. Or they're not in that. Mm. I, there is a pyramid. That, oh um, god, there has to be a pyramid. Of course, yes. there's a pyramid, and at the pyramid, at the, at the pinnacle, you have. Is it a triangle or a pyramid? It's a triangle. Okay, it's the triangle. The triangle of luxury. The triangle of doom. And <laughs> then you have your at the pinnacle, you have luxury, and then you have premium, and then you have your mid market product, and then you have your tier of um, entry level or mm. or more budget friendly mm-hmm. product. And I think there's there's a lot of blurring between kind of mid-market and premium and then premium and luxury. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how the department store thing plays out. Yeah. But I think the role of e-commerce and omnichannel managers and leaders within that space is not, as Marshall says, and I think it's brilliant that he is getting involved in that buying cycle, mm. is to actually use the data that's so- being generated yeah, build those feedback loops that. in, yeah. and actually shape the direction yeah. of uh, of the experience, yeah. and that that experience must be carried through online and in store, yeah. and focus on editing and storytelling. Because which it, ha- I love. it has to be the case that as well that the 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 e commerce platform must be the leading edge of what's happening out there. You know, yeah. if you're thinking about where you're looking for where you know the stone uh, in the pool with the ripple effect i mean the some of the stores are going to be the very end of the very uh, external um ripple um and presumably at this stage the uh, uh the e-commerce must be where you really spot the trends as they happen and as they as they you know as uh, you know as people as people's uh, behaviors and attitudes are, tra- are changing to the fashion that they're buying so it makes a whole heap of sense and it's interesting to see that now um, in in Marshall's role, that that is that's where he is. Uh, that's where they're at, and they're looking for that kind of feedback. I can't wait to see what mm. they do. Yeah, looking forward to it. Gordon, it's been a pleasure again, as always. It's uh, been luxury, so and uh, <laughs> thanks very much uh, to all our listeners. And uh, we'll speak to you all soon. You've been listening to Functional and Fabulous with Jerk Johan and Gordon Newman. If you'd like to know more about the podcast or about Studio Forty Nine and Omni Channel Stories, please go to functionalandfabulous.ie. Our sound engineer was Elaine Smith, and the show was produced by Roger Overall.